after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Thanks, Anita, and good morning again, everyone. And particularly warm welcome to you if you're visiting here with Father's Day along with uh, Dad or perhaps along uh, with the kids. I trust you've uh, already felt very welcome today and can I encourage you to grab a farmer's union on the way out, otherwise I'll get ruthlessly mocked by my staff team during the week for overestimating everyone else's love of iced coffee. <laughs> um, I hope that whether you've been following Jesus for decades or whether uh, you're here wondering what this stuff about Jesus is all about, you'll actually find looking at our passage from Revelation today really helpful, challenging and encouraging. There's a lot in there and there's an SMS line up on the screen, so if you feel like I skip over anything or aren't clear, feel free to fire in an SMS question and uh, we don't store numbers in that phone, so it's completely anonymous, so you can ask whatever you like. As we do look at it, it'd be great to open up your blue Bibles if they're close to page 1239 and as you do so, I'll just give a bit of an intro to the passage uh, for today and you'll see where we're going in the leaflets that you hopefully would have received on the way in. And you'll see that I put the first heading there, a deep-seated hunger for purpose. Father's Day is one of those days where we often take a bit of a step back and take a look at the longer view of life how we were raised, what we're doing with our own lives, and if we're parents, what do we want for our kids? And I'd put it to you that all of us have a fairly deep-seated hunger for a life of real purpose. We all want our lives to mean something. I don't think I have to argue for that, it's uncontroversial. What is controversial, however, is whether or not that purpose is something objective, something that is set and comes from outside ourselves, or whether purpose is purely subjective. We decide depending on what we'd like to do with our lives. Let me contrast a couple of worldviews to explain. Firstly, for the committed atheist, you have to acknowledge that any sense of purpose is completely subjective. You either have to make it up or adopt one. 
if we're just a big bag of chemicals, the result of endless chance, you have to acknowledge that there really is no big picture, no underlying purpose to our lives. You can use a great turn of phrase to make it sound as inspirational as you like, like we're evolution's highest point, a light burning brightly in the universe. But when it comes to purpose, you have to make up one or adopt one. I'm not saying they're all bad, you can actually adopt something quite admirable, like on Father's Day, providing for your kids a happy home, a great education, different life experiences, setting them on the path to living well. Or as an atheist, you may consider religion a scourge on society and set about erasing it from public life, parliament and schools like many are. The point being, you're adopting a purpose from someone else or making one up. Christianity, on the other hand, is a worldview that claims that our purpose in life is an objective truth, that there is a God at the centre of the universe a God that we're looking at in Revelation today, a God who himself gives us purpose. That it's God who creates us. That it's God who shows us we are immensely valuable to him, seen most clearly in him sending his son into our world, who gives his life on the cross for our sins, removing the barrier between us and God, restoring a relationship we broke. We've sung of that this morning. We've shared together with our sight and touch and taste of that in our meal of remembrance. And God raises Jesus to life again, to reign forever, and he calls us to join in with him in his great purposes in our world. It's an objective claim that there is a truth behind the universe. And the second thing I want to say about our sense of purpose is that it's really tested when we're suffering. Death, for example, is always hard to deal with, yet there's quite a difference in how we would process what some of us might call a senseless death, like a drug overdose or a car accident. And there's many people in the room today I know who find Father's Day hard uh, because of the death of someone that they love. Yet contrasted with a, what we'd call senseless death, If that same person were to die jumping into the Murray, three kids are in trouble and are about to drown and they're saved, but the adult dies, it's still a great tragedy. But the fact that there was a purpose to it dramatically changes how we process that suffering. Many suffer in our world today in all sorts of ways, but if we can discern a purpose to it, like bringing freedom to a country or enduring a refugee camp on Manus Island for three years in the hope of giving our kids a better life, having purpose transforms suffering. It brings hope. It gives us strength. And that places us in the book of Revelation well. The big flow of the book is that Christians, following Jesus' life, death and resurrection, are about to enter a time of immense suffering. In its original context, a great persecution has broken out across the Roman Empire. Christians are being fed to the lions, burned at the stake. And as the book opens with this letter to the churches from Jesus, he says to us, you'll be tempted to deny me, you'll be tempted to walk away. But I am with you. You will be victorious if you hold true to me. As we've been through the seven letters over the last few weeks, Jesus is saying, 
as you suffer, as you endure, here's what you're doing well, and here's what you need to repent of. Jesus says, stick with me, endure, persevere amongst this suffering, because there is a great and eternal purpose to it all. That's where we're up to in Revelation. But before we get to Jesus telling us of this adversity in uh, very kind of creative ways that we're unfamiliar with, which is really what chapters 6 to 20 are all about, Jesus describing this great adversity that's coming, the suffering, the chaos and the destruction that is to come. Before we get to that, we have this little breather of chapters 4 to 5, which are brilliant and something entirely different. We're going to spend uh, today and the next three weeks unpacking them. So let's get to it and we'll circle around at the end of our time together to show why this is designed to be a wonderful comfort and to give us a deep sense of purpose and indeed challenge today. And why, if it's all true, which of course for our regulars we hold it to be true, but just wanted to acknowledge there will be many with us today for whom that's an open question. If this is all true, it actually gives us the most amazing purpose to give ourselves to today. So Revelation 4, verse 1, page 1, 2, 3, 9. John records for us, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. After John had received Jesus' letters to the churches, which he wrote down, John is given a vision of heaven opened. And Jesus speaks, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. As he begins, he shares this vision of the present and future reality of heaven with us that we can't see, so that we would have confidence that the outcome Jesus promises is certain. Now, if you kind of get this point, I think it's one of the keys to grasping why we have the book of Revelation. So let me take some time to illustrate. So imagine uh, two old cars at the lights on... Portrush Road late at night and they're up for a drag. Engines are revving. I'll take it back a a generation to uh, uh, thrill the uh, older dads with us today. If you have any questions about this, ask Paul Moran. He'll understand the exact cars I'm speaking about after cruising around in his uh, XU1 this morning. I heard burbling (laughs) outside. But anyway, picture these two cars. There's a point behind this, so please stay with me. One's a 1971 Chrysler V8 Charger. Big wheels, big sound. It's the very picture of an American muscle car. The other is a little 1975 Mazda. Nothing much to look at. But for those in the know, it's actually a Mazda RX-3, and they can really move. Looking from the outside, one looks like a muscle car. One looks like something that would struggle to bring the groceries home from Woolies. (laughs) But if you could lift the bonnet on the Mazda and see that this was actually a highly modified ex-race car, a feat of engineering with a great driver, you would know with great certainty that despite appearances, the little Mazda would have it all over the V8 Charger. Charger would probably get off to one or two car length lead because it's got that low down grunt, but as the RX-3 breathes to life, it would blow straight past and not be seen again until the next lights. (laughs) What's happening here in these two chapters in Revelation is that we're getting an opportunity to kind of lift the lid, lift the bonnet on the universe, 
to see what's underneath this reality that as we sit here today and the readers of Revelation, we cannot see. We get a chance to lift the bonnet on the universe and see what's actually going on so that we might have certainty on the outcome of all things. Again, in its original context, the Roman Empire was at its peak, kind of revving its engines at the lights, so to speak, looking so powerful and so impressive. God's church, on the other hand, looked particularly weak. Christians were getting locked up in prison, executed for trusting in Jesus. What Jesus is doing with John in these two chapters is revealing what is unseen, showing John what's under the bonnet of the universe so that he might know the outcome of history, these things that Jesus says must take place, are within God's control and the outcome is entirely secure. So that they would not be discouraged by external appearances and abandon Jesus. Rather, they would be willing to suffer for his name, patiently enduring all that was to come, knowing that the victory was secure. So let's have a look under the bonnet together at the unseen reality at the heart of our universe. As Jesus showed John, verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. We're told here, at the heart of the universe, there is a personal God. Now, for people who already trust in Jesus, this is not a a great uh, bit of news to us. Well, I mean, it is great, it's fantastic, but it's not new news to us. But if you're here today unsure about Jesus, please try and think through all of this from the angle, if this is true, what does it all mean? Because verse 2 shows us that at the heart of our universe, there is not a cold, impersonal force. There's much more than the nothing of atheism, that there's actually a personal creator God ruling and reigning. One who has demonstrated He already loves us through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. This is great news that we're remembering this morning. Then verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald, encircled the throne. It's a picture of immense beauty leading to verse 4. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, I want to encourage you, as Revelation now makes the change to getting a little trippy for the most of the rest of it, not to be overwhelmed by the book of Revelation. It is a book that is for God's church and for our encouragement. You don't need some secret knowledge or code to crack it. Careful, patient reading by yourself or ideally with other Christians so you can benefit from each other's observation unlocks a lot of it. So let's unpack this one together. What are we to make of it? Let's start with the thrones, the white clothes and crowns. The careful reader up until this point will know that we don't have to speculate about these things. They would have noticed that these are three of the many things Jesus has promised his church is suffering church if they persevere. So last week we saw Jesus saying to his church in verse 21, to the one who is victorious, the one who sticks with Jesus to the end, I will give them the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down on my father, sat down with my father on his throne. 
Before that, in chapter 3, verse 5, to the one who is, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, says Jesus. And before that, in chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I think this is simply saying that around God's throne is gathered all those who throughout history have persevered and stuck with Jesus. And that God's throne is something to behold, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Again, the careful reader of Revelation will already know the seven lampstands are imagery for God's whole church. I was leading the kids the other week and going through the passage with all the images they didn't know and no one talked about the lampstand. And I said to the kids, well, what about the lampstand? They said, oh, we didn't raise that because we looked at that last week. Then one of the kids said, well, I wasn't there, can you tell me? And I said, well, you guys claim to know, um, tell Jonty uh, what he missed last week. And they said, oh, well, you know, the lampstand we looked at last week, that's, a, that's an image of God's church and the seven lampstands, that's God's whole church. And away they went. It was one of the most uh, amazing experiences. I sort of thought, yes, we're getting somewhere with our kids when they grasp these things. It was wonderfully encouraging. This is imagery for God's whole church, lighting the way to God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, described here as the sevenfold spirit or seven spirits of God. I think we're simply to take away from it that God's suffering church here on earth is right here in the middle of this most amazing scene, close to God, in a place of honour, very precious to him. Verse 6, also in front of the throne there was what looked like the sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now you probably note if you've ever done a series on Revelation before or picked up a technical commentary or something like that, pretty much every verse from now on people sort of speculate or pull in ideas and start drawing maps and wall charts and uh, things like that. I don't think we're to make it harder than it needs to be. I think we're just to read this and sort of be struck by the image. For me, as I read it, it casts my mind back to some of my favourite moments, surfing, that have been down at Middleton on a hot summer's morning where you kind of hit the water before the, uh, the sun gets up. And just after the sun rises, that hot northerly, which usually keeps the temperature up overnight, uh, drops off as the temperature of the land rises and the sea breeze prepares to kick in for the day. But for a moment in time, the wind stops and the sea goes like glass and the sunrise lights up the sky and reflects off the water and it is beautiful. There is few people who are up at that moment and if you are, there's no better place to see it than sitting on your surfboard on an ocean that's like glass. Revelation is trying to convey something infinitely more beautiful than the scene I just described. It's not literal. It's not trying to inspire endless academic debate and speculation. You don't need secret knowledge. You don't need wall charts with 24 thrones and seven spirits all arranged in concentric circles trying to make sense of it. My experience is that Revelation is a book that tends to either draw people in who get lost in the detail with all the wall charts 
or simply ignore it because we think it's too hard. I want to say, don't get lost in the details. Don't make it harder than it's need to be. This is a picture of immense beauty for all of us. It's simply saying that the heart of our universe is an indescribably beautiful God who places us, his church here on earth, close to him in this scene of great worship around that are those who have persevered to the end, even to death for Jesus' name, amidst the heaven which itself that is simply stunning. We read on and it kind of ramps up the kind of trippy factor as we get on to those creatures that come next in our passage. And again, I don't think it's literal that we have to kind of try and draw these four creatures with all the eyes and wings and things like that. I think it's simply trying to describe God's creation at its finest is here in this scene. Day and night, creation never stops in its praising. Saying, verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And as we come to it in the next few weeks, this picture just keeps expanding and getting all the more extraordinary, with the 24 elders then bowing down and praising. Then Jesus appears as a lamb who was slain because God loves us enough to send him to die for our sins. So upon seeing Jesus, his whole crowd starts singing a new song of praise. And we zoom out and find out that they're surrounded by 10,000 by 10,000, like this huge multitude of angels. And finally, we zoom out even further and see every creature on heaven and on earth praising God, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Imagine this kind of rolling, endless wave of praise and worship to God set amongst the most beautiful thing that you can ever even attempt to describe. Jesus gives John this amazing vision, this peek under the bonnet of the universe to show us a God at the centre of it all who is worthy of such praise. Because as we've said in what we've done this morning in our meal of remembrance, that he's the creator God. He's a loving God who didn't write this world off because of our sin and rebellion against him. But rather he pursues us. He gave his son's life for us. And we have in him a big picture purpose. We're designed to live in relationship with him, to worship and adore him at the same time as knowing we're deeply loved by him. We are designed to have God at the very centre of our lives. And if all this is true, and again I want to encourage you if that's an open question for you, I want to say if this is the Bible's claim, then if you live without God at the centre of your life, life will never really work quite right. You'll find a purpose for a while, you'll adopt one, you'll make one up, but then it'll slip through your fingers. You'll look forward to things in this life, thinking that's where I'll find happiness and they won't deliver as promised. A phone call from the doctor can turn your world upside down. A senseless death of someone you love can tear it apart over and over again. We are designed to have something far more immovable at the centre of our lives, something that can never be shaken. Our Creator, our loving, our Redeemer God. 
But there's also a much sharper edge here to be warned of. These chapters make it very clear that every knee will ultimately bow before God and give Him glory. And as the last book of the Bible, it builds on all that has gone before, where we learn that God will be glorified by all in two very different ways. Either through the worship of joyful hearts who have accepted Jesus' death on the cross for them, this free pardon of sin, who know we get to worship and enjoy this God forever. Or God will be glorified as he judges those who are foolish enough to believe they can live their whole lives without reference to God. And they are separated from this life-giving good God for all eternity. Which is quite a horrifying reality. There will be no comfort there, no friendship, no joy, no beauty, no good thing. Now, I get that that's a confronting reality if true, but if it's true, which obviously as a church we believe it is, everyone needs to know while there's still time to accept this gracious offer from God while God's invitation to eternal joy with him still stands for everyone who accepts Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And that is the mission of the church. It's our purpose. God is at work in the world and he wants us to join him. We are all invited to participate in the greatest, most diverse, most significant cause in all of history, the building of God's kingdom. All Christians, compelled by the love of Christ, are witnesses to Jesus' life, death and resurrection. So the most important question to ask at this point, on this day, is to ask, have you already bent the knee? If not, you owe it to yourself to explore further. There's lots of different ways that we can do that. We here at church, we regularly run a course called Looking Into Life with Jesus, Life for Short. The next one's coming up. There's invites outside at the welcome desk. There's details in your leaflet today. It's free. It's super relaxed. We provide the drinks, great food. You can ask any question you like. We explore the evidence together. But whatever you do, do something. Read the Bible with a Christian friend. If I've set off a big question for you and you think, I want to know the answer, ask it now via your uh, SMS line, which is up on screen. It is anonymous. You can ask anything you like. Because we're here to help, but also here to declare together as a people, as people who have experienced what it is like to live life with God at the centre, that life with Jesus there, life with God, our Trinitarian God, Father, Son and Spirit... With him at the centre, life really works and Jesus is a great king to live for. But sort it out now because this is an urgent question. You don't know when the drag racing pea platter is going to bring you into God's presence. It could be today. And if you haven't bent the knee to Jesus already, there will be no remedy you will not be able to say, but Jesus, I never knew. No one ever warned me. Because he'll say, 2nd of September, 
2018 Father's Day. You won't be able to say, God, you didn't provide the proof. Because he'll say, the resurrection of my son Jesus, I consider sufficient proof. And they spent a whole night on the resurrection of Jesus at life. And they even threw in free beer and chicken wings to get you there. (laughs) For those here today that have already bent the knee to Jesus and know that he's a great king, there's much here for us also. I find, I don't know how you find it, but the Christian life, I think, is one of great tension. It's not one where you ever entirely relax. You're very aware of the world around us, of all the many people who don't know Jesus and need to know, while this gracious offer still stands. That's what drives us to plant churches, to give our time and resources to see people come to know Jesus. This picture shows us that every sacrifice, every lost moment of sleep, every moment where you've had to hear Jesus' words to persevere, is totally worth it. So don't give up. Press on knowing that God's spirit-driven church here on earth is at the centre of this most heavenly and beautiful picture of praise. And do remember we're designed to praise God, to have him at the centre of our lives, seeking to glorify him. We worship God as we gather, we praise him as we pray, encourage one another, listen to God's word, as we sing, how great thou art in a moment. Take it as a time where we're joining in with this rolling wave of praise, of a connection between the unseen reality and our experience here on earth. It's a great song and a great one to sing with all of your heart. Yet as we head out of the building, of course, we worship God in every aspect of life, how we drive, how we love our friends, how we care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, how we forgive others. And maybe today there's some forgiveness that needs to happen with our dads or our children, perhaps. We worship and honour God by making godly choices, big and small, each day. But we also worship God in the big movements of life, keeping God at the centre of our decision-making as we choose careers or will we take this role over there or this one here, as we place God at the centre of it and seek to bring Him glory in how we work, how we spend the resources He gives us, how we join in with Jesus on His mission to this world through His church, as we persevere in it all through suffering, not denying Jesus' name. Through all of that, we worship and praise our God now, knowing the unseen reality behind it all, which we'll one day see with sight. Through it all, Jesus gave this vision to John because he wants us to see under the bonnet of the universe, to see this glorious God at the centre of it all, indescribable in beauty, worthy of bending the knee in worship today and indeed each day. Let us close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you you gave this most beautiful vision to the Apostle John. We pray that amongst all the different imagery you might impress uh, this most beautiful scene upon our hearts, that we might be uh, lifted to you in worship and, and just kind of 
catch a glimpse through your word of your eternal glory, the fact that you are worthy of all praise and all honour and all glory. And we pray that Christians right around the world this day, by your spirit, uh, might persevere knowing, uh, having seen under the hood through the book of Revelation, of the unseen reality that underpins us all, that we might not be fooled by external appearances, but might place our trust in you each day, knowing the outcome of all these things is internally secure. That as Jesus says, these things that come, this suffering that comes, this life of tension, this life of sacrifice, these things must take place. Yet to those who persevere, we'll be given a crown of life. We will be righteous before you, clothed in white, so to speak. And that we get to sit down with you in this rolling scene of worship in heaven, far beyond what we can describe in words. Please help us to be so captured by this vision that we would persevere and we would reach out to others who don't know you so that they too can join this great multitude of praise. Please speed on that day, Lord. Please help each of us to persevere to the end. We ask this in Jesus' precious and very powerful name. Amen.